listening to Los Altos Institute's course on globalization and the rise of the anti-globalization movement, which ran in the summer of 2022. So I said last time, if there were um, any uh, additional questions uh, about um, the uh, last lecture, because it contained piles of new information I went through pretty quickly, I just check for that now. So is there anything from last lecture people want to follow up before we dive into the next part? Um, oh. No, there was an interesting point you raised, uh, you need an enormous surplus in order to create poverty. Has this always played out everywhere in every empire? Um, well, there's a big debate about uh, the Inca empire on that front. Um, it's one of the reasons Shining Path and its associated parties are um, such interesting movements. Yeah. Um, it does appear that um, the Inca Empire used its energy systems in, in fairly different ways than other empires. So a lot of Inca, Inca ter, a lot of the Inca Empire's territorial expansion appears to have been driven by the empire's willingness to provide famine aid. So you um, you could get food aid from the Inca Empire during a famine, but then you your um, your principality or your your little statelet became a member of it, mm. and um, and the Inca do appear to have been pretty interested in um, evenly distributing food in the empire. Now that stated, um, it. Um, the experience of like being in the empire was still pretty onerous because they exacted a labor tribute uh, from the able-bodied men in the villages they controlled. And um, uh, those laborers were um, uh, basically, um, when their agricultural labor was not necessary, they were put to work on the road system and uh, chronically underfed and overworked uh, building infrastructure. Uh, this is where we see um, uh, the intentional cultivation of coca really gets going because um, they're fed coca as an appetite suppressant while they work and also as a stimulant to keep them working longer and harder. So, um, uh, so, in, so, so certainly the Inca Empire is, is not different from other empires in that it doesn't produce coercion and oppression, um, but it does appear to have had a fairly egalitarian and humanitarian food distribution ethos. Um, there's still major wealth concentrations and there's coercion. There is a bunch of wealth concentrated at the center. Um, and big armies that, uh, that uh, the empire maintains. Uh, but it, it's an interesting, in, it's interesting enough. Uh, in, uh, it, it's distinct enough in that way. And obviously, um, I mean, I think also that the problem is the question of how we define poverty. And um, the last day that Margaret Thatcher is the Prime Minister of uh, Britain, um, there's an amazing debate. You can find parts of it in, on YouTube um, where I think it's one of the most um, profound and honest debates about the nature of poverty uh, that, uh, 
certainly any political body has ever engaged in. Uh, because Thatcher's, um, because basically, that, uh, Thatcher took the, takes the position that the definition of poverty is the lack of basic material necessities to continue to be alive. So as long as you're uh, fed, clothed, and housed, you cannot possibly be poor. Uh, and, you know, I think for many people who, uh, they didn't express it in this way, but for me, somebody, you know, obviously of an opposing political uh, view, I would argue the definition of poverty is lacking the resources to participate in the mainstream of your own society. Uh, so, you know, this is why I would argue, argue that, that people are obviously, you know, um, you know and, and, and how your society constructs its mainstream has a lot to do with that too. It's not just a question of how poverty works. Uh, but um, anyway, uh, it is a pretty even pattern generally that it is, it's not so much that um, it's axiomatic that scale creates poverty, but the reverse is definitely the case that you can't really create poverty effectively without, um, uh, without major coercion, that uh, populations just decline or move if you don't have a coercive force creating poor people and then making them do something. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's part of it. And we have Jonathan today, that's good. Um, so, uh, yeah, any other, other stuff about last episode? Hi, Jonathan. I wasn't here last time. I can't say anything. Pardon me? I wasn't here last time. I can't say anything. <laughs> yes, right. Um, but uh, nobody else has anything. And if not, I'll dive into today's material. So um, we sort of did, I guess, 1000 BC to about 1300 last episode. Uh, managed to get a lot of that done. And, um, you know, as I said, it's mostly a condensation of the economic history course in the podcast. Um, the next bit is um, the way that we go from the world economy, including about two thirds of the world to including all of it, uh, or nearly all of it, um, and the rise of European supremacy. So, one of the first things to recognize that I didn't talk about last time is there's this trade, there's this economic activity, surpluses are being created. Uh, whom are the surpluses enriching? And in the case of, you know, when I talked about the Egyptian grain trade, um, the grain trade uh, with Egypt largely did not enrich the Roman state. It enriched individuals within the Roman state that, who had created consortia that were like uh, modern corporations in many ways. So uh, the grain trade didn't make the uh, emperor wealthy, but it did make Cicero wealthy. He was, you know, the Senate majority leader and in many, many ways, the Mitch McConnell of his day. Uh, I mean, he wrote, he, 
you know, he was a great scholar of rhetoric. We owe him a lot. We owe him a great debt. But um, if you actually look at Cicero's uh, a personal corruption and voting record, it's um, really quite appalling. Uh, but it's matched by this uh, precise procedural knowledge that uh, you see with McConnell. Uh, anyway, um, the uh, uh, so um, when it came to colonies, right? These uh, things the Greeks, the Phoenicians, the Shirazis set up. Um, who was being enriched there? Well, once again, um, largely the merchant class. Uh, they, um, uh, it's this class that's being enriched and that's a, that's a pretty, when we think about, and we have to remember that most, that a lot of wealth is not coming from trade. Um, so I'm not saying that the merchant class is getting most of the money in society, um, taxes, all kinds of things are going directly to the state, uh, but uh, the trade itself largely enriches, um, uh, it's the state facilitating a particular class becoming richer. And it's interesting to note that during the rise of European economic supremacy, um, this is not the case to the same degree. Uh, one of the features of the uh, early part of European supremacy is how much of the wealth suddenly accrues to the state and to the sovereign. Uh, and uh, this is in some ways, the rise of European supremacy um, features a lot of things that are uncharacteristic of the world economy's normal behavior. So, Tell you the, so the beginnings of European supremacy, there's a, there's a set of dominoes that fall and they're actually like really precise dominoes. Like if the dominoes were pointed in even sl a slightly different direction, um, it's not clear that Europe would have ended up on top of the world. Certain events had to take place in quite a precise order for it to all work. And uh, where this begins, where we see the beginnings of European supremacy, um, it's um, uh, the states that uh, uh, that start that are not the states you would think of. They're states that no longer exist. Uh, they're the Republic of Venice and the Republic of Genoa. And they, in many ways, uh, they pioneer a set of technologies and economic and social relationships that become the blueprint for the age of European supremacy. So what, um, uh, so the Genovese and uh, Venetians are part of a long-term struggle for uh, supremacy in the Mediterranean, fighting various uh, Muslim states and the Byzantine Empire, etc., and uh, they end up doing pretty well. And in particular, these two states between them control by the late Middle Ages, by the 1300s, um, substantial portions of Crete and Cyprus. Now, Crete and Cyprus. Uh, at this point have undergone um, centuries of warfare. They're, um, right, they're, they're 
uh, so strategically valuable in fighting wars in the Mediterranean uh, that they're constantly captured. So they also have high levels of fortification uh, like Malta. Um, but what the, what the Venetians figure out is that um, there's something very distinct about them ecologically. And that is that the number one luxury good that everybody is fighting to control uh, its passage into Europe uh, in the 1300s is sugar and sugar cane. And it turns out that Crete and Cyprus are the only places in Europe you can grow sugar cane. Um, now, it, uh, now, growing sugar cane is a little tricky, right? You've got a recalcitrant local population that um, is not interested in working for any of their island's various occupiers. Um, and you also, um, and, and there are questions of, how, of the controllability of that population, even if you were to get them to work for you. And raising sugar cane in the Mediterranean is, is backbreaking work. Um, it doesn't kill you, but it sure tires you out. And it's sure an arduous form of agriculture. Well, it's around this time that another uh, crucial historical event is taking place, which is um, the Islamization of the Niger Basin. So um, this is the age of Mansa Musa and uh, the rise of Timbuktu as a great city uh, where the Niger Basin civilization has long been a, one of the most agriculturally productive areas in the world. Today, these states are less so, right? They're part of the Sahel. Uh, but places like Niger, Chad, um, Mauritania, uh, Mali in particular, um, were um, places that had long-term high population agricultural civilizations uh, that um, worship different gods than they do now. Islam um, reached the area. Initial conversions were um, largely consensual. Um, most of the, uh, the great kingdoms of the, the region um, adopted Islam from the top down. Um, but um, what Islam also brought, as it did in um, play, uh, as it did in East Africa, um, was literacy, and so there were big social incentives for uh, conversion because um, literacy is pretty irresistible to people who don't have it. It's very hard to keep a, a society illiterate. People once they discover writing, they think it's a really cool trick and make huge sacrifices to read and write. Uh, it's, it's really something. So the, um, uh, so this, um, this Islam, this Islamization of the Niger um, brings to um, the people of that region a number of things, one of which is Aristotle's doctrine of just war. Uh, interpreted by both Muslim and Christian scholars um, to mean that a war of religious conversion is an, is an intrinsically just war. And if you prosecute a just war, 
as opposed to an unjust war, you're allowed to sell your war captives into slavery. Now, the trans-Saharan slave trade had long been a, um, uh, an important thing. There had been a trans-Saharan slave trade um, in the days of Hannibal, in the days of the Punic Wars during the rise of Rome, but it had been limited technologically um, because um, it's hell to move things across the Sahara, particularly um, humans who need to be hydrated all the time, and especially when you're using horses, which were the animals that um, Saharan slave traders had long used. In the 1300s, a long-term Berber belief that camels were an intrinsically unclean animal began to collapse. And this coincided with these wars of conversion. And what this effectively meant was that the volume of black African slaves delivered to markets on the south coast of the Mediterranean Sea surged to unprecedented levels in a single century. Uh, and this we discover, um, so uh, many people think that uh, the term nigger is, a, um, uh, is some kind of contraction of negro, meaning black. It actually did not mean that when it uh, first became a word in Venice and Genoa. Um, what the term meant, um, it, was, it was inaccurate, um, but it, it meant a person from the Niger Basin. Uh, it meant an African who could be enslaved. And it was the opposite of another term that had, that had been the main way Afri people from Sub-Saharan Africa had been referred to up to that time. And that term had been Ethiopian. The Ethiopians, of course, were the first kingdom in the world to become Christian as a people back in 226 AD. So what happened during this surge in the slave trade, this new word, so basically Ethiopian meant good African or Christian African, whereas this other term meant bad African or Muslim African, an African who had been justly enslaved. Now, of course, none of them were Muslims. The whole reason they'd been enslaved was because they weren't. But um, that, uh, that was lost on the Italians. Uh, they, well, it wasn't so much lost on them. They just didn't give a shit. So um, you can see what's happening here because the language is tracking what's about to happen, which is the creation of racial slavery, which is a brand new kind of slavery. Slavery had traditionally been, people were enslaved, usually originally by being captured in war. Although people sometimes sold themselves into slavery uh, in order to pay off family debts. Um, and there were long traditions of slavery in uh, all through Europe. Uh, two different models, chattel slavery in the north and what we might call Mediterranean slavery in the south. 
Mediterranean slavery had a lot more rules and regulations uh, because the populations of enslaved people were larger. But the functions of both of these systems was gradual integration of a population. It wasn't really expected that your family would remain enslaved for more than three to five generations. That over time, you would get out of slavery. In German chattel slavery, it was usually, um, uh, uh, usually got out through um, non-consensual sex uh, because um, the Germans had few slaves and very few things to do with them. So they generally kept them as house servants and um, uh, would often grow emotionally attached to them, uh, which would cause people to aid, to come out of slavery within a few generations, particularly because the children of slaves were typically related to the slave owners. So that's, that's hard for slavery to be too heritable when you have a system like that. In uh, the case of uh, in Mediterranean slavery, there were all kinds of rules for being able to go to court to compel self-purchase, limitations on the number of hours you could work, requirements that you'd be able to take a second job so you could buy yourself, uh, all kinds of strange stuff. So both of these systems were designed not to keep people in slavery indefinitely and largely to allow slaves to move about um, in society. Uh, the movement of Ro both Roman and uh, Germanic slaves was fairly unrestricted. In fact, Roman house slaves were often sent out into disreputable public places. It would be inappropriate to send a free person to make a purchase. So, you know, if you needed to buy a bunch of oysters, right? Oysters are unclean. The people who, you know, work with them are unclean. So you'd send a slave to buy the oysters, that sort of thing. So the kind of slavery that the Venetians and Genovese develop is radically different. Um, first of all, they're, uh, so they realize there's a real advantage to purchasing all of these, uh, not using the labor on Crete and Cyprus, but to purchase slaves to do it. Um, sugar cane is not a high mortality industry. And it's low mortality, hard uh, work industries that slaves are designed for. Their, their labor costs are front loaded, right? You pay so much of the co slaves cost you over the course of the slave's life at the moment of purchase. So you don't want to send your slave down a mine. It might cave in and you lose all your money. So sugarcane, sugarcane is a great thing to use these slaves for. But these African slaves, they didn't speak the language. Uh, they had no way of getting home. And if they escaped, they were color-coded and easily detectable. So this meant that you could have a brutal work regime because the you could because, because escape becomes effectively infeasible. Whereas with Roman or Germanic slavery, the slaves had a real shot at successfully escaping. And so things couldn't be as brutal as, they, uh, as, uh, as in this new kind of slavery that we call plantation slavery. Another feature of plantation slavery 
is that if you're going to have this workforce that's working in this this under backbreaking conditions, um, you don't want them to be able to go on strike. Uh, it's the other thing slaves can do. There's a big the um, Arab world had a big problem, something called the Zanj Rebellion, where the agricultural slaves and the um, Tigris Euphrates Delta had uh, just taken over the area around Basra and cut off all the trade for a generation, sent the Abbasid Caliphate into terminal decline. Why could they do that? Because they all had kitchen gardens. They could support themselves indefinitely on the land they were also farming for their masters. So another feature we see with plantation slavery is the, uh, is the radical limitation on the right of slaves to plant anything but the crop, because you want to control. If you import the food, even though it costs you more, your control over your slaves is that much tighter because they now rely on food that the master is bringing rather than food they're producing themselves. All of these various innovations are worked out by the Genovese and Venetians between 1300 and 1500. Uh, yes. Uh, now, another feature of plantation slavery is that there's basically no such thing as society. Uh, you know, in, you know to, to quote Margaret Thatcher out of context, society really does not exist. Uh, the, um, in plantation slavery, um, you, you don't want cities, you don't want community, you don't want the performing arts. What you want is, what you have are a small number of elites in the big house or a couple of big houses and uh, then the slaves who lead completely separate non-integrated lives. Again, radically different from previous models of slavery. Well, this sort of thing makes a bunch of money. Um, and uh, other Europeans take notice. But uh, they don't get in on the business. It's not like they're going to find another place to grow sugar cane. So it's at this point that we change our optic to Portugal. One of the few people I would argue probably history you know, generally history would have unfolded pretty much the same uh, most of the time if you, if you removed an important or famous person as a historical actor. Most of history is strongly conditioned by structural forces and not by individual people's choices. I would suggest that um, Henry the Navigator, Prince of Sagresh, is one of the few candidates uh, for a person without whom things would have gone very differently. Henry the Navigator, crown prince, never king of Portugal, um, in the early 1400s, is obsessed with um, this particular mission that the Portuguese eventually becomes for, becomes for a while the mission of Portugal. I mentioned the Ethiopians earlier. Well, as um, now, Spain and Portugal are the only place where Europe, where Christianity's war with Islam is going well. Everywhere else, the Christians are losing ground. They're losing ground in Eastern Europe. They're losing ground in the Middle East. They're losing ground in Central Asia. 
right? The, um, the Nestorian Christians who had been the most numerous had been all but wiped out by, uh, uh, by, by 1500. So, you know, there's this, um, there's this sense that, um, uh, that Christianity is losing and that the Spanish and Portuguese have something special about them. They have something special to tell us about um, how to save Christianity. And this is very much the context in which um, Henry the Navigator situates himself. He believes that what needs to happen is for um, the Christians to develop ocean-going craft that can go down the coast of Africa because he knows that on the other side of the bad Africans, the Muslim Africans, are the Ethiopians. Prester John is the king of Ethiopia, this legendary king um, of Christian Africa. And the port and Henry the Navigator has this idea that if we can just build um, some kind of, uh, if we can create a new kind of ocean going craft, we can do a bunch of things. We can get the aid of Prester John and bring his armies to Europe. Um, but also, um, we can circumvent the Muslims who control our trade with Asia. That um, uh, it's the uh, it's the Muslims who have increased the cost of thing of sugarcane that makes it possible for the Venetians and Genovese to do what they do. But there are all kinds of luxury goods from Asia you can't grow in Crete and Cyprus, right? There's silk. There's cloves, there's all kinds of stuff that uh, comes out of Asia and Africa and Muslim ports in the Mediterranean are the brokers of that stuff. What if we could get past them? We could even get to Japan. Uh, that's one of the other goals Henry the Navigator has. So um, he invests tremendous amounts of money. He headhunts experts. He purchases maps, he purchases dows and other kinds of ships that go in the Indian and Pacific oceans. Uh, and Sagresh, the people of Sagresh are put to work building a new kind of vessel, a vessel that if completed will turn the tide in the global war against Islam this piece of technology and it's this is weird this is like this kind of thinking seems reasonable to us but this is 50 years before the start of the scientific revolution people who think this way are not that common people who believe that uh, a single technology will revolutionize world systems uh and um he pours resources into that the uh, this project goes on after his death, but while he's alive, we get the proto caravel. We get a whole new kind of craft, because another thing that Henry the Navigator has spent a fortune on is getting suitable old growth timber for making very tough masts. Because one of the features of these ships, as I mentioned, the Dow 
shallow, doesn't draw down into the water so much. These ships that Henry builds are enormous and they have these insanely strong masts that can handle the torque that an ocean current and the wind are may push through a mast that is trying to, uh, to hold the sails in a certain direction. Uh, Europe, especially Southern Europe, Southern Europe had basically destroyed its old growth reserves um, uh, ages ago and it transformed its ecosystem so that the kinds of trees they would need wouldn't even grow there. Uh, so the Romans had so altered the climate and terrain, they produced so much erosion, um, changed weather systems and whatever through deforestation. I mean, this is how Rome ultimately screws itself up it logs out Gaul and has to start shipping wood from Germany um, and interfering with all kinds of stuff that ultimately bring about its decline, its fall. Um, in the case of the uh, these, uh, so lots of money is spent to produce a small number of ships that have very special properties. Uh, and Pretty much as soon as the Portuguese develop any of this stuff, they're not good at keeping the tech under wraps. The Spanish steal the tech as well, uh, pretty fast. Also, there's tremendous migration between Spain and Portugal at this point uh, because uh, uh, most of Spain's Jewish population who are expelled during the Reconquista do not go immediately to North Africa and become the Sephardim. Many move to Portugal and either later abandon Portugal for North Africa or integrate into Portuguese society in a complex fashion. So it sure is lucky that the first thing Henry the Navigator's expedition successfully discover is the island of Madeira. Um, showing up anywhere else first probably wouldn't have worked out so well. But what Madeira has going for it is the following. It has a climate where you can grow sugar. It's uninhabited. Uh, there's, 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 there's no people there. And there's just all this great land for growing sugar. And because there's no people there, you have the old, you have some of the best old growth timber in the hemisphere available for making more of these masts. So the Portuguese having no idea what they're doing, um, do not try and plant sugar cane themselves. They hire, uh, Venetians and or they don't hire them. They make an interesting deal. So first it's Madeira, but then swift on the 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 uh, swift on the heels of Madeira, the Spanish discover the Canary Islands, which are inhabited, and Spain proceeds to enslave nearly everyone there, about one hundred and fifty thousand people that they dump into the slave trade, glutting the market, dramatically dropping the cost of slaves. And um, the Spanish though are interested, the Spanish believe that um, wealth equals gold. 
does the, the this is one of the um, great fallacies of the Spanish state. It never gets over it. Um, it does not serve its economic interests particularly well because Spain's main activity is increasing Europe's gold supply and producing inflation. Uh, so the Canary Islanders, they do keep around, they have doing placer gold mining and gold panning. Uh, they don't take the advantage of the ecology of the Canaries that the Portuguese do in Madeira and the Azores. And what the Portuguese set up is this brilliant system. It's the, um, it's the captain's, it's the captain factor system. So you've got basically two Portuguese main uh, sets of Portuguese government employees on the island, both in small numbers. You have the captain. The captain's job is the defense of the island. He's given a couple of ships and some armed men. However, it's not his job to put down slave rebellions, slave escapes, anything like that. Anything that happens internal to the islands is the problem of somebody else. The other thing you have on this island is the factor and the factory. Now, we've done a weird thing with the word factory. We used to use the term manufactory to refer to what the word factory now refers to. Factory, and you can see this like in a map of Canada, right? Obviously, factory used to mean something else because Moose Factory does not make a whole bunch of sense as a place name, right? You look at the bottom of James Bay and you don't picture people like in a plant, you know, screwing the, uh, the antlers onto the moose on the assembly line, right? Um, we have a York Factory, we have a Moose Factory. Um, these are places run by a factor. A factor runs a large warehouse and the factor's, professional, uh, the factor's profession is to determine the value of goods that are brought to him and hand out either money or store credit in the amount of those goods. So the factor's job is to evaluate sugarcane that's brought to him and get an appropriate price. And here's what's interesting. This person is not an aristocrat, they're an expert. They're part of this emerging new idea of, a, of, their being, of their being European bureaucrats again after a long period of there being virtually none. Um, they're like the captain, they're employees of the crown. And the money that comes in through these factories goes into the crown's pockets. Now, what do I mean when I say the crown? Well, at this point, the king's personal bank account and the country's bank account are essentially the same thing. The national treasury is also the king's money. Uh, these things are totally conflated. And one of the, this is what I was talking about earlier. You see with the arrival of the captain factory system, that the money from trade is changing direction. That most of the money that's being made from trade is going into these European monarchies, these European countries, monarchs, these family systems. And what, the, and what these surpluses do 
is they allow Europe to create monarchical absolutism. The divine right of kings is a doctrine that um, is um, operationalized in this period. Yeah, technically God has always been picking the king, but the idea that the king should have this massive unchecked power that suddenly most of the fighting men in the country are not in the retinue of the country's lords. They're not militias raised by the lords. They're part of the king's army, this rapidly growing thing over which the king has unmediated control. So you can see there's this cascade of effects from these early, fairly improbable events that produce these very powerful feedback effects, right? Because when the Portuguese run out of... Um, of wood for masts on Madeira, they clear cut the Azores. And so you can see that the power to conquer the next thing is being amplified by this incredible chain that originally starts with just a certain amount of personal vision and very good luck. Uh, and so this, uh, this captain factory system spreads, this plantation system spreads based on enslaved labor um, and the planter class. Now, of course, the planters make money too. And the planters are all initially anyway, Italians. They're Venetian and Genovese people who know how to do sugarcane. Um, they get some of the profit, but... Um, the amount of profit they make is highly conditioned by the, by the cut that the factor is making sure the king gets. So it's also the job of the people running these plantations to guard their stuff and control their slaves. They have to have their own fighting men for anything that happens on the plantation. Here again, you see... Um, this is a cost that the, the, that, um, the crown could have chosen to bear, but it chooses not to. The crown expects um, the individuals and then later the companies uh, under it running the individual plantations. Um, there, of course, you're in charge. If you're rich enough to have a bunch of stuff that needs guarding, you're rich enough to guard it yourself. And that remains really a fundamental principle during the rise of European supremacy. This idea is not abandoned by Europeans really until the second half of the 19th century. That the purpose of colonialism is to enrich the state so that it can colonize more. And it, and to, uh, so this machine, gets going and this machine eventually does two main things. One of course is that it gets to the Americas and the Portuguese start in on Brazil along the same principles. Um, the Spanish um, also get to the Americas and raid for gold and that that's, they don't, they're not really good at, at, the, at the economics. Uh, they, uh, there's certainly great wealth that they extract, but um, poverty in Spain gets worse 
uh, during this time. The crown gets richer, the people do not. Uh, whereas I wouldn't say the same with Portugal. I think uh, a lot of the enrichment, some more of the enrichment trickles down. Um, now, that's, uh, that's the one direction. We do have to say a little bit about the other direction. The Portuguese are successful. They do reach the kingdom of Prester John, only to discover that Ethiopia is in terrible shape. It's lost its only operational port. And you'll be surprised about this. Um, the Portuguese um, start doing what we would see as modern international development aid in Ethiopia, um, starting in the 1500s. Um, they build the first ever bridge across the Blue Nile River. Um, they pay to move the capital to the city of Gondar and construct a new capital for uh, the Ethiopians because they are interested in Christianity winning the war against Islam. That is an altruistic belief they have. Uh, but of course they don't stop there. They end up in Goa, Macau, uh, Nagasaki, uh, these become important Portuguese cities. Uh, there's a Portuguese ghetto in all of these places by 1600. And uh, that, um, uh, so how are, so one of the questions, well, how is, how is this understood as, um, you know, the world economy? It doesn't really include the Pacific yet. They're, the Portuguese are in the Western Pacific. The Spanish do end up uh, in the Philippines. And um, they're one of the few examples of successful Pacific trade. Uh, it's why the capital of the Philippines is Mexico City until 1923. Uh, then they, they decide perhaps they should have a Filipino capital in the Philippines. Uh, but the Spanish in the Philippines do not act like the Spanish elsewhere. They largely act like the Portuguese, which is that they set up uh, factories. Even if they don't have plantations, there's still the fort and it has and it's run by the captain and the factor. And uh, it's just that people are bringing local luxury goods to those places, but the same system obtains the Portuguese largely do not interfere in these uh, in the places that uh, where they set this system up, except in places where somebody's done it before them and they have to kick them out or overthrow them. And that is the case of the Portuguese in East Africa, India, and China. They're kicking other people out of successful colonies, of successful trading ports. But um, in West Africa and in the Americas, the captain factor system is constructed and it's really the beginning of society in those places. By the, uh, by, it's actually not even the early 16th century. In 1494, the only body that Europeans understand to be able to make international law pronounces in a document called the Treaty of Tordesillas that the world, that places outside Europe are, exist under the, um, the suzerainty of either the Portuguese or Spanish crown. 
the Western Hemisphere is awarded to the Spanish crown and the Eastern Hemisphere is awarded to the Portuguese with a few footnotes and exceptions. But it's really um, when the Spanish take the Philippines in 1586, it's a sign that the Treaty of Tordesillas system has collapsed, that England, France, these other European empires want to get in on this game. And this is one of the drivers of the Reformation that is not talked about very much. That obviously, if you renounce the Catholic Church, then the Pope is no longer making international law. There's no longer a legal impediment to colonizing the Western Hemisphere or trading in the Eastern Hemisphere. And so Tordesillas is probably a geopolitical mistake for the Spanish and Portuguese. It paints too big a target on them. The other empires are too interested in horning in on this stuff that seems to be so extremely monopolized. Um, the Spanish, of course, have very good luck and are able to incorporate huge amounts of the Americas into their system by uh, largely not interfering too much, right? The Spanish are allies of the kingdom of Tlaxcala when it conquers the Aztec empire and replaces the Triple Alliance. Because um, there are, you know, 250,000 Tlaxcalans and 1,200 Spaniards. Uh, the virgin soil epidemics and various other things that befall the Americas end up in a situation where the Spanish sit on top of highly elaborate pre-existing trading and transportation and cultural systems. And the virgin soil epidemics take out about 90% of the populations in these regions. And the Spanish largely end up in charge of places that could handle a 90% population drop and still keep functioning, which is really quite extraordinary. Uh, Mexico Valley had approximately uh, 40 million people in it when uh, the Spanish arrived. It was the most densely populated area of the planet, largely because of avocado cultivation. There, there's nothing more efficient at sucking fat out of the soil. Um, Usually you have to do it in a two-stage process. You have, to, uh, you have to put plants there and then animals have to eat the plants and the animals turn into fat and that's very inefficient. Or things like olives or, um, you know, you can work olives, sunflowers, things like that. But the amount of fat per square foot of these plants is a tiny fraction of what the avocado can do. And contrary to the great protein myth, um, it's really fat, not protein that limits uh, populations, right? It's pretty easy to complete your proteins with vegetables. It's harder to get all the fat you need. So, um, the, uh, uh, so the Mexico Valley is, as a system is already producing tribute um, and the Spanish, simply turn the direction of the pipe towards Europe. Um, and of course the Mexico Valley system 
is highly diverse. It's made up of many separate states that are tributary to the alliance of states that sit on top and run the system. And that alliance of states rotates. And so essentially what the Spanish do is they simply create their own little city state uh, where the Aztec one had been uh, in uh, Tenochtitlan and sit on top of this pre-existing system. And it doesn't seem that weird initially. Similarly, in the Inca empire, the Inca had been obsessed. The Inca were a very small group. They were one macro lineage. They were a couple thousand people out of 8 million. And they had been very focused on showing that they were religiously, culturally, phenotypically, and in all other ways distinct from the peoples they ruled over. So again, this serves the Spanish very well. The Spanish proceed to act like the Inca. And they continue, for instance, the labor tribute system of the Inca. They just stop maintaining uh, Inca infrastructure. They bring in a bunch of muleteers to run mule trails, and they dump those laborers into the mines because it's so economically unwise to put slaves down mines. So, um, the, but I want to stress that other than this Portuguese strip of plantations in Brazil, um, Europeans don't actually know how to seize undeveloped land and extract value from it or settle it at this point. They're not successful there except in this plantation model. Um, this idea of, you know, homesteaders going out there and building stuff and doing stuff, um, that doesn't really happen until the English get involved. And the English are special because of their ability to dump English people into other places. There are a lot of special cultural, political, economic reasons, many of which are highly situational that allow the English to actually develop what we would think of as colonialism. Um, for the most part, um, the rest of European colonialism during this initial rise is, um, uh, is largely um, parasitic. You're simply setting up trade choke points um, making sure they're fairly well armed and uh, pushing uh, goods through them that you're not that Europeans aren't producing and they're not becoming a significant local population involved in production. You've got your military guys and you've got your factory guys. And uh, um, with the Spanish, similarly, you see um, uh, you see that they're a pretty small minority in the territories they control. The French get hold of Louisiana eventually, um, and they can't really figure out how to make it pay because, well, France is a pretty good place to live. Uh, so they, the, the French Louisiana's French population, after they've been running it for 160 years, peaks at 25,000. That's, and Louisiana is 
any piece of land where the water will flow through New Orleans on its way to the sea. Uh, it's brilliantly, it's, it's brilliant. Like these, um, you've got all this navigable water. The French should have been able to make a real go of it, but pretty much all they can do is extract a bit of fur um, and set up some not particularly profitable plantations around New Orleans. Uh, the region is, well, the region becomes underdeveloped because it loses 90% of its population in the virgin soil epidemics. And population loss during these epidemics is paradoxical in that we assume that the people who live near the Europeans are most likely to die and those who live far from them are least likely. And the reverse is true. Uh, if you live near your, the Europeans, um, there's a chance they might help you if you're sick. That's pretty significant. And sometimes they do. And sometimes it's really sort of good enough to push that average up. Because the reason these things are called virgin soil epidemics is something like smallpox, it arrives in your town. And in Europe, in Asia, in Africa, smallpox is an endemic disease. And that means that by the age of 10, everybody has either died from smallpox or is immune to smallpox. And so, uh, and the main factor that determines whether you survive smallpox is effective nursing. Smallpox arrives in a Native American community, everybody gets sick. Um, a lot of them recover and then starve to death because the economy has been shut down for so long. Uh, that's uh, that's the, the normal pattern of, of death from the smallpox epidemics. And so the smallpox is actually worse the further you go from a European settlement where somebody could potentially nurse you and has medical information about the disease. Uh, so it's the most advanced and wide reaching trade networks over navigable water where we see the most massive population losses. And in the Amazon, it's more like a 99% death rate from what we're now learning from archeology span of the upper Amazon. Uh, it's a catastrophe. But the people that we meet in the Amazon rainforest who are understood to be uncontacted Stone Age people, many of them are survivors of a fairly advanced agricultural civilization that was destroyed by smallpox. Historical climatologists now believe that the Little Ice Age uh, was caused by these depopulations in uh, uh, in the Amazon and Mississippi basins, because trees sure grow fast in the Amazon. But most of the Amazon was in use for slash and burn corn agriculture. So the ancient rainforests that we've been seeking to protect, there are very good reasons to protect the Amazon rainforest, but people now have better explanation for why there are very few, very old trees. Um, because slash and burn corn agriculture means you're constantly abandoning one area and burning another uh, in a rotation around your village. So um, again, a lot of this stuff that's happening for the Europeans is mostly luck, right? That this world system is not particularly inevitable in a lot of ways. Like 
whoever got to the new world was gonna cause the virgin soil epidemics. Um, in fact, it may be that a disproportionate number of them were caused by enslaved Africans because some of these diseases like smallpox, they're only childhood diseases. And Jonathan has uh, <laughs> their points on childhood disease in the Americas of the theory that uh, he uh, is telling me about unrelated to this, that uh, I, uh, that uh, yeah, add a whole other dimension to this. Um, but uh, in any case, this thing we think of as the age of European supremacy, I will add one last chapter to it, which is this transition from the world of Tordesillas, this 1300 to 1600 period, and the next phase. Um, so obviously this thing has a lot to do with energy and how the world system works. It's based on a new maritime technology and the caravel gives way to the galleon and you get higher and higher capacity shipping. Um, and you find the Connecticut white pine is perfect for making masts and you can do even more amazing stuff. Um, all that's going on, um, but there, uh, but, uh, but the, the pattern largely remains the same of the money flowing into the absolute monarchy and producing this centralized project of enriching the state. And that system is typically called mercantilism, um, preferential regulated trade. The only real twist on this system, which expands slowly in areas Europeans are not aren't uh, that have not, are not currently highly economically productive, uh, and the kinds of things Europeans do in certain areas actually cause that area's economic productivity to rise even slower. It's not just disease, but at the periphery of, um, uh, of European allied Christian kingdoms and European forts in Africa, slave raiding becomes a significant business, um, which is destabilizing because it's no longer, you've now got entrepreneurs just going out into the hinterland uh, with firearms and abducting people um, individually. Uh, this is the basis of um, the creation of the city of Luanda, the uh, capital of Angola today. Uh, and these depopulations um, and the political instability that the expansion of slave raiding causes means that while Europeans claim a lot of Africa, very little of Africa is being effectively exploited by Europeans for anything other than the simple extraction of labor. Uh, in the big innovation then really comes from the distinctive characteristics of the British. The British, are in the middle of a process called enclosure when they begin colonization. Um, enclosure is driven by the wool boom. The wool boom is a response to a climate downturn in the 14th century. Fashion changes and people start wearing um, different garments seasonally. It used to be the number of layers would change seasonally, but you were working with linen, 
high labor and highly labor intensive fabrics that you wore all year round, just at uh, different quantities. Uh, the demand for, uh, because the Black Death kills a third of Europe's labor force at the same time, uh, fashion must change. And low and less labor intensive ways of staying warm in the winter are sheep. You get these sheep out there, you just shear them once. You can use casual labor to shear the sheep, card the wool, etc. England, again, lucks into a system where it turns out the more people you throw off their land, the cheaper it is to hire shepherds. The cheaper labor for carding wool is. Uh, and so the Tudor monarchy, which has constant problems of legitimacy, um, is constantly seizing land that used to have peasants on it. And as Thomas More says in his book, Utopia, criticizing the Tudor monarchy, uh, it used to be in England that uh, men ate sheep, but now sheep eat men. And uh, what this meant was that England had developed a system of incentives to ensure that it had a large, landless, impoverished population. And it relentlessly criminalized that population uh, by prohibiting begging, by prohibiting sleeping on public roads, by having significant penalties for robbery and theft. And what were people sentenced to? They were turned into a commodity. They became indentured servants and could be purchased like slaves. Uh, their labor for seven years. And that's largely how the Southern United States was first populated uh, in this uh, Southern five of the 13 colonies. Um, the Northern eight, other system, the system of incentives there uh, was um, the Calvinist political theory. Um, in Calvinism, if your town doesn't get along, you split into two towns, which is pretty inconvenient in Europe, but pretty fucking brilliant in Massachusetts. Uh, and in um, and in Massachusetts, you've also got a lot of work for um, high risk work for free young men, logging and whaling. So to give you a sense of how different the migration rates out of Europe are, when the your great European powers go, go to war in what Sir Winston Churchill called the First World War, we call it the Seven Years War because it was nine years long, um, the... Uh, uh, when these European powers uh, finally go to war, it turns out that Britain's ace in the hole is that the total population of New France and Louisiana is 60,000 Frenchmen, and the population of the 13 colonies is 1 million Englishmen. And this ends up becoming the basis for Britain's uh, the British Empire's brilliant move for winning the Seven Years' War. Everybody else fights the war in Europe. England has some allies in Europe, Portugal and uh, Prussia. And um, 
The Prussians and Portuguese are constantly demanding British help and the British keep promising it and not showing up because they have a better plan. Now this time they don't have the best Navy, but it doesn't matter because they think of the right thing to do with their Navy. They've realized that they're totally dependent on these colonies, right? The Exchequer doesn't balance without all this money we're bringing in from the new world. What if we cut off every other empire's revenue source by taking the war to the colonies, to the periphery? So the British land their troops in India. They land their troops in Gambia. They land troops everywhere. The other European empires aren't sending anyone because they're fighting in the same region of Germany and France that the Europeans are always fighting in. So, and in the new world, they don't land much in the way of English troops. They send Geoffrey Amherst there to create something that is a brilliant innovation, which turns on them. Uh, the thing he creates, uh, we know as the Continental Army. And the second in command, uh, yes, you can see that's, that's, that's totally, yeah, Churchill, yeah, I think Churchill, <laughs> Churchill's analysis of the Seven Years' War is pretty similar, and yeah, his response is pretty similar. So, yeah, because clearly it's not because he believed that um, the Indians were a noble people. Uh, he was, he was less sold on that than most of his contemporaries, and yet India factors in so prominently to his war strategy. In any case, the, um, uh, the Seven Years' War, um, the Seven Years' War is actually started by this guy, a uh, junior uh, military officer who um, is supposed to be escorting um, a uh, negotiator uh, from the Iroquois Confederacy to Ohio um, because there have been problems with English colonists going west of the Appalachians and seizing land illegally. And this is screwing up England's Indian allies. So they send uh, George Washington with, uh, to escort this diplomat in 1754. The diplomat gets viciously drunk at some point gets into a shootout with um, a bunch of French allies and some Frenchmen and uh, the world is plunged into a nine-year war. Strangely, despite his role in starting it, Washington is heavily promoted by Jeffrey Amherst within the Continental Army, which obviously works out better for Washington than for Amherst. But it's arguable that the British could never have won the Seven Years' War and become the most powerful nation on earth if they hadn't created the Continental Army, which would ultimately cause their undoing in the 13 colonies. Like, it may just have been a price they had to pay. Uh, in any case, 1763, this new world order under, under British hegemony uh, begins and the British have to pay for it. So they decide that the people in the periphery have been so effective in fighting the war, why not have them pay for it as well? 
Um, and so, of course, we see the Stamp Act, the Hat Act, and the other intolerable acts, which are important to us here, not so much because they caused the American Revolution, but because of the larger principle that they show the limitations of mercantilism, that simply running an extractive trade, you will hit a wall. And both the British and Spanish, um, it goes different ways. The British failure involves loss of political control because they try and extract too much too fast. Um, the Spanish failure is the opposite. The Spanish effort to make the new world fund the absolute monarchy is mostly a failure. By the end of the Spanish, um, well, by the end of the Spanish Habsburg dynasty in 1714, 93% um, of the money that's being extracted is being lost on the way. And uh, we like to give pirates a lot of credit because they are so very romantic but most of that money gets lost in the town where it's made. Uh, often local indigenous lineages have rebranded themselves as Spanish Catholic ones and are largely able to restore their old power and consequently hold back most of the money. There's a thing that Spanish governors send back when they're asked to carry out orders they know just won't get done. It's a, uh, the, uh, it's, a, it's, a form, it's a formal thing that governors just start writing in correspondence, which is, obesco pero no cumplo. I obey, but do not comply. Um, which, you know, makes about as much sense as the Nicene Creed, but uh, it uh, nevertheless, uh, all this, we see really these limitations in various ways. And ultimately the Haitian revolution is another example of the French just squeezing Haiti too hard under mercantilism. And uh, the first successful slave rebellion uh, takes off. We haven't finished punishing the slaves for that rebellion yet, but uh, it did happen. Um, I can't really call it successful. It's probably still going on. Uh, in any case, um, these various, while the Europeans are starting to get bad feedback on their system, uh, the United States comes into being. And France similarly is taken, uh, is also the subject of a liberal revolution. And what liberals are in, what liberals decide over the course of the first of the second half of the 18th century and first half of the 19th century is to reorder their theory of international trade. Because you don't want the state to be big if you're a liberal at this time. You don't want the state to um, be a, uh, you don't want the people at the center of the state to accumulate the ability to perpetuate their own rule. Um, what you want is a state that is basically just the army and the army's job is to tell people to leave uh, them alone. Well, in this model, and it doesn't happen right away with either France or the United States, but you see this transfer of 
the financial logic of empire. That uh, that um, what begins to happen is the state starts bearing more of the costs and reaping fewer of the profits. That's ultimately going to be the world system that we're moving towards in modernity. And it's really what closes this period. You, the original age of monarchical absolutism and European supremacy is conditioned by, uh, is conditioned by this mercantilist logic that dumps money into the state, the state conquers more territory, more money comes in, and it produces this uh, feedback effect. Um, those feedback effects start being more problematic and less predictable at this point. And liberal states with a different theory of whom they're enriching come along. The last thing that shifts is the logic, uh, is the energy logic of the world. Because the empires that turn out to be important, the ones who largely uh, make the future are not. You're not seeing the Spanish and Portuguese and Italians. Uh, they're not the ones uh, who, are, who are sitting atop the world order that's about to come into being. It's the Prussians. Well, we heard about the Prussians the other day. They don't have an empire in the new world. Uh, they're just a, the largest German principality. And the English, sure, the English have been around, the French have been around. But the Belgians, what the hell are the Belgians? Why are the Belgians suddenly important? And of course, the answer is coal. Um, the coal-fired global economy will have radically different properties than the world economy of the sale. Um, yes, sailing ships could move large quantities of goods. You could move rice from the new world to the old world, and it made sense. But the limitless free energy that coal gives you um, completely changes the logic of trade and it changes the logic of where trade can go on land. Europeans have figured out how to move good, lots of goods across water, but when there's no navigable water, the energy costs remain pretty prohibitive until coal comes along. So it's going to be Coal and liberalism next time. That's the, those are the foundations of the global order that we're coming into. And <clears throat> historians have actually stopped talking about <clears throat> the British Empire and French Empire as a continuous thing. They now refer to the first British Empire, which existed until 1776. It was a wind-powered empire that extracted its wealth from the west coast, uh, from the east coast of North America, and uh, relied heavily on um, in the Caribbean and southern U.S. on slave labor. And the second British Empire, which extracted its wealth from India, was fired by coal and used its opposition to slavery in or uh, as a means of turning itself into the world's policeman. Similarly, the first French empire, once again, 
based in the new world, based on the on monarchical absolutism uh, and the House of Bourbon. Um, uh, and uh, the second French empire, oh, it's extracting its wealth from Indochina and uh, is, um, uh, it's, oh yes, it's based in Vietnam, this coal-fired liberal empire. Uh, there's, there's surprisingly little territorial and political continuity in these European empires when we do this big switch. And that's one of the reasons you can get um, so much uptake uh, when uh, across the board that the empires that don't economically restructure are largely the ones without coal, the Ottomans, the Spanish, the Portuguese. So anyway, that takes us up to uh, the Indian mutiny. So, um, uh, we'll, uh, starting next week, we'll actually be talking about the beginnings of the world economy as we know it. Questions, comments? I guess I don't have any questions, just uh, there's a lot there that uh, I really that you know is familiar that connects us today that I recognize, I guess. Yeah, it's um, it's weird. The Battle of the Plains of Abraham is such an outlier in terms of the, the experience of the Seven Years' War that you can see why it's so central to our national myth. Mm -hmm. Like the British and French forces were roughly equally matched. Um, and this is just, and that's that's an aberration. It helps us to tell the story of what Canada is supposed to mean. But the British largely start the Seven Years' War by um, blocking the uh, Strait of Gibraltar uh, to the French being able to move um, uh, troops to the New World from uh, Marseille. And uh, that's the... Um, yeah, that's that's the trigger. So it's uh, yeah, it's weird to think that um, yeah, it's weird that this this story we grew up with, we don't know how much of an aberration it is. Mm -hmm. It still um, it, it still makes me go like, oh yeah, that that really happened when you mentioned um, it just just the idea, the energy logic of the world. Like, why did Brazil never become a superpower? Because people always predicted it was going to be one of those great economies. And it never did. You said it didn't have the right energy. It never had it yeah. have coal. It didn't, you know, it had, it ran its cars on alcohol and biofuel. And it's, uh, it, it's just interesting how big an effect that has on, a, on trade. Yeah, it's economy. really shocking, actually, if um, I, I have a map somewhere of the world's coal deposits. And yeah, it's just, it's like looking at the history of the world after the discovery of coal. You can see the order in which people access their coal. And again, the coal is largely an accident. Um, the English believe they have the best transportation system because they perfected canal building. And so they go into this massive canal building boom in um, uh, both the, uh, and uh, they hit all this coal which they originally start disposing of as like canal waste. 
And uh, eventually it occurs to people that uh, fun could be had with this coal. But uh, yeah, it's um, the fact that, that so much of the accessible coal supply of the world is just in this circle around the English Channel. Um, yeah, it, uh, it predetermines a fair bit. I mean, Japan, I would say, is your one outlier. Japan has always been a massive net energy importer and has been highly imperially successful um, and has largely only succeeded in the age of fossil fuels. Um, it's pretty weird that, uh, yeah, so I always have to mention the exception to that, uh, to that otherwise pretty axiomatic rule. 